Welcome back to Streamageddon, the deadliest TV and streaming podcast that we are so thankful to have you listening to. I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined by the expert, the client, and the killer herself, Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? Uh, peachy keen, Chris. Thank oh, you. I love to hear it. And you know, we have a stuffed Thanksgiving week episode coming your way. Strike updates, industry gossip, and a little later, we're going to do something we do about once a year. We're going to watch a Netflix movie. You know, holiday travel is coming up, so you might wonder, should you watch it on a plane? Should you watch it on a train? Should you watch it in Spain? And if you are going to Spain, I don't know why you're watching a movie. Can we come with you to Spain? Of course, the movie in question is the David Fincher thriller, The Killer. And we've got a review of it, but first we have some news. And that news, I promise, is not just filler. We're going to begin with an update on the SAG-AFTRA strike uh, resolution. We think it's a resolution, but but boy, as the details have come out about this contract, uh, not everyone is pleased, Diane. They're sure not. And I think that part of it is that folks just want more information. A lot of people are just getting around to reading the 18 pages of this contract. Yes, and the voting goes until early December, so the members of SAG-AFTRA do have time to read this. Uh, But a big question, or uh, let's say area of contention that's come up, is around AI and the creation of digital replicas. Uh, We knew this was going to be a big issue, uh, even as they announced the resolution of the strike, but it took until the actual contract came out for people to really begin to pick it apart. And uh, not everyone's happy. No, I actually sent you some social media posts from the actor Justine Bateman, who is also a researcher and has been advising the Guild on AI. She has been warning uh, members of the Guild, basically, that the studios do not have the actor's interest or goodwill at all in mind when with these uses specifically of what they call digital replicas. Yeah, and the concern that a lot of members of the the SAG-AFTRA have brought up is that basically there's nothing stopping the studios from saying, you must give us consent for digital replicas if you're going to take this job. You know, the way that uh, Fran Drescher and uh, SAG-AFTRA chief negotiator Duncan Crabtree Ireland framed this uh, when they announced the deal is that now there would be consent that everyone would have to get consent and compensation for their digital replica. And that on the surface sounds good. But what we are discovering is that there is nothing in this contract that says, well, if you don't give that consent, we won't hire you. Which on the one hand, makes some sense. And on the other hand, is not the solution that many, many, many members of this guild were looking for. No. On the other hand, I think it's important to realize that before this contract, there were no protections regarding digital replicas. So uh, it's I think what they're offering is better than nothing. And that is their big selling point. And unfortunately, that's just a, a hard sell. Yeah, better than nothing is a good way to put it, and that is a hard sell. Uh, I Just tonight, as we're recording this, 
uh, a friend of mine who's in uh, SAG forwarded me a, a screen recording of Duncan Crabtree Ireland doing an Instagram live Q&A. And I will say, he looks a little tired, and he looks like he's doing a bit of damage control. And I wanted to play about one minute of audio from this Instagram live Q&A addressing this specific question about... Is there anything protecting me, the actor, the SAG member, from a studio saying, well, it's it's digital replica or no job at all? And here's what Duncan had to say. So it is part of the negotiation for any project with an actor or with even a background actor that the, the actor has to be willing to do what it takes to perform in that project. And so that's the back and forth of that negotiation. And in this case, you know, can the producer make it a condition of employment that you agree to have a digital replica created of you? Yes, they can make that a condition of employment. They can make it a condition of employment just like any of the other things that I just talked about. But what this contract does that you didn't have before is this contract provides enforceable requirements that they disclose to you the details, the reasonably specific details of the intended use of that digital replica. So you actually have a basis on which to decide whether to agree to that or not. This contract also makes it so they can't spring it on you as a surprise because they have to give you advance notice of their intention to ask you to create a digital replica and give you a chance to consider whether you want to do that or not. And if you've already been booked or engaged for a project and they come back to you after the fact and say, oh, we want to get your consent to make a digital replica, or they say we want to expand on the consent you already gave us and do something more with that digital replica than you agreed to, well, you have the right to say no to that consent. And if you do, they can't just terminate you, they have to pay out your contract, pay or play, just like it would have always been. That's Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, chief negotiator for SAG-AFTRA. I mean, I think it helps the way that he breaks it down there. It isn't nothing. Yeah, it's not nothing. I thought that answer was very clear. It was a solid answer in that I understand exactly what they gained and what they didn't gain. And that may or may not make you a SAG after a member happy. No, and I think particularly after, you know, what's been a painful year for a lot of members. Um, obviously, we hear a lot about the high profile members of these guilds, you know, the millionaires who are superstar celebrities and w- are already back at work. But there are a lot of people who, um, you know, this strike has been painful for them and their families and they really are counting on these being strong protections and a a strong contract going forward. Yeah, uh, the moment in that answer that struck me as the hardest, maybe, if I put myself in the the shoes of a SAG-AFTRA member, is, you know, if the studio comes to you after the fact and wants to add digital replica rights or expand digital replica usage that you previously agreed to, uh, you can say no. And they don't just get to terminate you, but they do get to fire you and just pay out the remainder of your contract, which if you're George Clooney, that's a huge deal and a ton of money they have to pay out and it sinks their project. But if you are 99% of the membership of SAG-AFTRA, you are in some ways, I, I hate to say it, but just tactically speaking, you are replaceable. And it may not cost them that much to cut you loose and replace you with someone else, depending on where they are in the production process. Do they have to reshoot? Obviously, many factors there. It is still a, a protection, but it is not necessarily a strong protection. 
No. And what is a, a really challenging job market? Because, um, you know, it seems like production may be uh, contracting this year. So I, I understand the hesitation t- to sign for some members. Yeah, and I think a good point there. It is a really uh, more cutthroat than usual market for this this acting labor right now. And so if you're not willing to sign that digital replica agreement, there is no shortage of other actors who might be able to replace you. And that is, I think, the core tension, the, the, main, the main concern that these you know, hardworking actors have still. And and I think it's fair for them to to really be concerned about that. I would be concerned too. Right. And while compensation is guaranteed, the amount of that compensation is not. So, you know, that really also leaves a lot of room for the AMPTP members to still um, perhaps take advantage of, of these people. Yeah, and it's an industry based on relationships. So if you're not willing to sign that, you might feel that you are burning a bridge that will cost you opportunities in the future. I, I can feel that pressure, and that is what is absolutely the the main concern of people like Justine Bateman, who also point out that if there are fewer actors employed on sets because they can be replaced, if background actors can be replaced by digital replicas, that trickles down to the entire industry of people who work on set. That affects the crew, that affects the people who do the driving, the catering. It it affects all of these other people who have been out of work for months now because of the strike. And, and you know, there, there, I, there's no easy answer to this. If, if, if SAG did not approve this contract, it would be a disaster for Hollywood and for all of those people who work on sets that I just mentioned. But I, I would not, you know, would not blame any member for voting against this if they feel that it is not the deal that will protect their livelihoods. Agreed. I Right now, I believe that this will pass. I do too. Um, uh, but I don't think it's going to have the overwhelming support that we saw for um, the Writers Guild contract. And I think that that will also echo not just in the in the vote numbers, but in, um, you know, the general sentiment and and uh, across morale. And a lot could change now in the next couple of weeks. Um, so I know I'll be, I'll be following it closely. Yeah, as will I. And of course, we will bring you more interesting updates or discussion here on Streamageddon. Uh, But that is not the only major post-strike related event happening right now on this podcast, because it has been months since we have done perhaps the most important public service we do on this show. Yes, Diane, I can see the look on your face. I can see you shaking your head because you know what music is about to play. I do. It's the music that means it's time for America's favorite game show. The game show where I force Diane to unpreparedly ask the question, have these shows been renewed or canceled? I can tell Diane was wondering why was Chris going so fast through the intro, so fast through through the SAG news. It's because we have 
a dozen shows to get through on this edition of Renewed or Cancelled. We have been holding back, waiting for the strikes to end, as have the studios. Many of these decisions have been uh, on the bubble, so to speak, for months Mm. now. And so, here we go. Twelve shows. Can you ace this, Diane, with zero preparation? And I I promise, I'll start with a layup. The Bear. Renewed or Cancelled. The Bear was Renewed. That's correct. As we discussed last week on the show, finally renewed for season three, FX on Hulu. Number two, The Great. The Great was canceled. Yes. Also on Hulu, The Great was canceled back in August after three seasons, but the stars could not talk about it until the strike ended, even though they were promoting a canceled show. Uh, So now Elle Fanning uh, doing the rounds, and uh, what an excellent role that was for Elle Fanning. So happy for her to have it, sad for it to go. Yeah, people love that show. What a shame. Ah, truly. Well, in a different kind of genre... Young Sheldon, renewed or canceled? Young Sheldon was canceled. That's correct. Kind of an amicable parting of ways, we're told. After seven seasons on CBS, Young Sheldon will be ending with an hour-long series finale on May 16th. Uh, But fun fact I learned from this, Young Sheldon and the Big Bang Theory, actually Warner Brothers Discovery Productions, and there is already another spinoff of the Big Bang Theory in the works, but wouldn't you know it, it's going to be a Max original. Oh, brother. (laughs) Okay, moving on to another uh, corner of the streaming universe, Gen V, renewed or canceled? Uh, Gen V was renewed. That's correct. Gen V on Amazon, the spinoff of The Boys, renewed for season two. Another one for you. Have you heard of this show? It's called Based on a True Story, renewed or canceled. Oh, I I need a a, a lifeline. You want Can a you lifeline? Tell me what network it's on. Yeah, this is a streamer. Or... It is a stre- It is streaming on Peacock. Peacock. So that would make me think that it's canceled, but. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. You 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 locked in your answer. I'm so sorry. Wait, I said but. But uh, nope. You said the word canceled. You locked in that answer. You did not get it right according to the rules. I am enforcing arbitrarily. Uh, it was. That re- is not how. It, it was <laughs> renewed. It was renewed. Do I need to ask final answer going forward? Is that where we're going with this? If I say but, it means I'm about to say that my, I. My finger was on the okay. button. Is it a doc show? Is it a doc show? No, get this. It is a comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco and Chris Messina. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Good for them. My reaction as well. I had no idea Peacock was capable of renewing anything comedic. Yeah, that's good. I I think I would have, I should have phrased it differently because that was going to be my guess. But okay, fine. I'm so sorry. I'm sticking, I consulted the judges and we are sticking by our decision. Uh, But you have so many more chances uh, to make this up uh, because our next one is another comedy. Welcome to Flatch. That's got to be canceled. Yeah, it's got to be canceled. It was a Fox comedy that I assumed was canceled after one season, but great news, it was canceled after two seasons. Moving right along to a different genre, let's say. The Rookie, colon, Feds. 
Oh, uh, I think that was canceled too. That's correct. The rookie feds uh, has been on the bubble since May, May of this year because of the strikes. Finally canceled after one season, along with ABC's announcement. This was an ABC show. ABC mm-hmm. also announced they're passing officially on a spinoff of The Good Doctor that would have been called The Good Lawyer, which is just way too close to The Good Wife. I'm so glad they realized that. Yeah, but The Good Wife is great. Yeah, but The, the Good Lawyer, that's n- never going to reach Mm-mm. the heights, the heights of The Good Wife. Okay, again, shifting gears. This one, have you heard of it? It's called Praise Petey. Oh, I have. I'm bummed about this because I, I know some real talented folks who worked on this show. Uh, Praise Petey was canceled. Yeah, that is correct. This was on Freeform, canceled after one season, an animated comedy. It was Freeform's first animated series. And based on the uh, current vibe around Freeform, I'm going to guess it's their last animated series. But, you know... Nice try, guys. Yeah, Freeform is having a fire sale. Oh my god! We're having a fire sale! That's just our modern Disney conglomerate fire sale sound effect for you. You're welcome, America. Uh, But again, again, we're going to shift gears just a little bit. You can have a bit of a hint about which streamer I'm about to mention because of that last sound effect. That's my my hint for you. The show in question is called Futurama. Has Futurama been renewed or canceled for the third time? I assume renewed. Yeah, you assumed right. Futurama, which was picked up by Hulu for two seasons, of which we've only seen one, has been renewed for two more seasons. So season 12 of Futurama is coming in 2024, but don't worry, there will be season 13 and 14 as well. This totally thrilling news for me as one of the only living humans older than the TV series Futurama at this point. It's true. Screw new ideas. Let's just... Don't eat them. <laughs> okay. We are getting close to the end here, and I thought, let's bring the, the let's bring this home. Let's land this plane with a lightning round. All three of these shows air on Paramount+. Plus. That is your hint for the lightning round, but I want the answers fast, snappy. Are you ready, Diane? Sure. iCarly, renewed or canceled? Canceled. That's correct. After three seasons... Fatal Attraction, renewed or canceled? Canceled. That's right, canceled after one season. Finally, Rabbit Hole, renewed or canceled? Canceled. Yeah, of course. They're all canceled after, yes again, one season on Paramount+. And that's it, Diane, 11 out of 12. An excellent showing here on Renewed or Canceled. I wanted to end uh, with the Paramount uh, lightning round because we have some Paramount adjacent news that I wanted to get to. And I realize we've never really had a Paramount sound effect. And so I've cobbled together something. And I want to know, Diane, how do you feel about this as our Paramount side uh, sound effect? Here we go. A lot of anticipation, I know. Paramount. Uh, it suits the moment. 
Sure, I'll take it. Uh, you know, the, the part of Paramount I want to talk about, nothing to do with Frasier, unfortunately, uh, it's Showtime. Remember Showtime? Showtime, once a premium cable network on par with HBO, according to the people who work at Showtime. Now, uh, part of Paramount Plus, the premium tier, so to speak, of Paramount Plus, called Paramount Plus with Showtime. But what if you are still paying for Showtime through your cable provider? What is going on? I had no idea anyone was still paying for Showtime through their cable provider, but I found out this week when a listener uh, texted me a screenshot of just like large angry red letters on a screen from Showtime saying, it's over, man. Showtime Anytime is gone. That's a shame, really. Showtime used to... Okay, the past couple years weren't their best, but Showtime had some great content. Yeah, and truly, there was an era, early streaming, where we had HBO Go and Showtime Anytime. And they were both kind of pioneers of the premium streaming experience. And at one point, Showtime Anytime worked a lot better. Than HBO Go. Maybe because there were less viewers. We don't know. Well, we do. But either way, it, it was, like there was a time when that was a big deal. And it really struck me that when I, when I got this text message, I thought, what are you talking about? Showtime Anytime still a thing? So our listener, are they going to subscribe to Paramount Plus? Oh, they're in like a, a spiral right now. I did not have the heart to ask them, are you going to somehow pay even more money to continue to watch uh, Showtime? He was just looking to see if there were episodes of Yellow Jackets he hadn't seen yet. A reminder that there are good shows on Showtime. And in fact, we will be reviewing one in the coming weeks. Nathan Fielder's The Curse on Showtime, but if you see a lot of the ads for it, they don't emphasize the Showtime part as much as they emphasize the Paramount Plus part. Ugh. Ugh. Uh, so if your reaction is also, ugh, and maybe you are one of the 10 people still paying your cable provider for Showtime, what are you supposed to do? Well, according to Showtime's official FAQ, you should call your cable provider. That's it. Oh, fun. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, nope, we're punting on that. Their longer form answer is maybe your cable provider has an on-demand streaming app or an on-demand function on your cable box that will let you watch Showtime shows on demand. But no, you are not getting access to Paramount Plus with Showtime. Compare this to people who still subscribe to HBO through their cable provider, they do get the the standard uh, Max package, not the 4K fancy Max package, but the standard Max package that does include HBO, as well as the rest of Max uh, included. Whether they want those discovery programs or yeah, not. You know, nobody's asking that question yet. We, we may soon. Uh, so, I, you know, I just, wow, what an end of an era if I may say so myself. Mm, I feel like uh, putting the curse on Paramount Plus with Showtime is just one more way of Nathan Fielder inspiring audiences to really examine their relationship with entertainment. Uh, Well said, and I cannot wait to talk about that show more, but we want to let a few episodes build up so we can give you a more informed opinion 
Uh, but speaking of informed opinions, I do have one more Paramount-related topic I wanted to touch on. Diane, have you been watching uh, any of the recent guest hosts on The Daily Show? Because, yes, it's time for a quick check-in on Daily Show Host Watch. I've been watching the way that God intended, which is through clips on TikTok. That's beautiful. Any Anyone you. uh, catch your eye as you scroll through the feed? I mean, you know... Uh, uh, we've talked about this that I, I I really think Sarah Silverman is just a natural. I gotta say, I think she crushed it in her second outing. The the two most recent hosts were Sarah Silverman and Leslie Jones, both returning guest hosts. Sarah Silverman, a natural. She both is great behind the desk, very funny and self-deprecating, and also did a, a, a correspondent piece, basically, a pre-taped bit, where she went and visited one of the legal marijuana shops uh, near Union Square in New York, and it had the vibe of an old MTV man-on-the-street kind of comedy bit, but a little less edgy and a little more kind of silly and nice. Everyone who was interviewed and and again, everyone who was interviewed either worked at a weed shop or was shopping at a weed shop or was smoking weed in Union Square. And so all of them were kind of a bit of a butt of a joke, but they were all in on the joke with her and she was in on the joke with them and having fun with them. No one felt like they were being taken advantage of by this comedian. All of them felt like they were having a good time. And there was something kind of silly and nice about it. It was not... Uh, at all, like, genre-defining or breakthrough comedy. But it was just a great example of if you let the host be themselves or do their thing, they they can really get comfortable and have a lot of fun. And as both Sarah and Leslie Jones are returning, you can just see that they're more comfortable and relaxed because they've done this before, and now they can have fun with it. Uh, Both of them also interesting lineups of guests because all their guests were clearly booked before the SAG strike ended. So instead of the celebrity guests you might expect, you had Sarah Silverman interviewing this woman who wrote a book about the the female biology and how it evolved. And I've never heard of this woman before, but she owned that stage in front of an entire studio audience that had also never heard of her and had not signed up for a lecture about the female anatomy and evolution, but she killed it. And it was clearly someone Sarah was really interested in and knew and wanted to talk to. Same thing on Sarah's last night, she had Judd Apatow on to do a criminally short interview where they just regaled each other with old stories and photos of them from like, 25 years ago on the Gary Shandling show or the Larry Sanders show, whichever one it was called. I forget where he began and the character ended. It's been years. That's great. See, I I think that she would do the job well, but I don't I think don't. that they will hire her. No, she also had a really good uh, what they call a long story short segment on The Daily Show, one of their kind of deep dives on generative AI, which as if you know Sarah Silverman, you know she is currently suing OpenAI and ChatGPT for ingesting her work, including her novel. And so she was a fascinating person to lead that segment, both funny, but clearly very read in on the subject. Uh, Also funny, I want to say, Leslie Jones, 
fantastic, hilarious, has such a great banter with the correspondents, has literal, like, uh, kind of laugh-out-loud moments with them. And her guests included Lisa Leslie from the NBA, uh, WNBA, who she was fangirling over in the most wonderful way, and Steve Kornacki, who she has repeatedly in her life, you know, obsessed <laughs> over publicly. They had never met until this interview on The Daily Show. Utterly delightful. And again, the, the through line here is they're comfortable and they're having fun. And that should be a note to the executives at Paramount. Yeah. Also, I understand that they're looking for new talent. It seems like they might be. But uh, people who have been on TV for a long time are often good at being on TV. Shocker. I know. <laughs> you know, um, someone who may be a, a fresh face that they think will appeal to young viewers Young viewers aren't watching television anyway. They're going to do what I do because I'm so young and cool <laughs> and just watch the clips on social media. I I think that trying to suddenly change the viewing habits of members of Gen Z and Gen Alpha is not going to be effective. Agreed. And still yet, I do not know where this is going to land. Uh, but... I will continue to regale you with stories of a late-night TV show you are not watching on Daily Show Host Watch, our signature segment. Uh, but, again, we're moving fast. We have to move on to the hot industry gossip that landed uh, the day we recorded this. So we just gotta dig right into it, because it's about our man, the Zaz. Who has seen better days in the press. Indeed. At a time when you would think he would be doing some rounds to try and um, win back some favor among talent, uh, because it hasn't been a great week over at Warner Brothers Discovery. No, and what I will say first off is we're referring in the, the industry gossip side to a pair of articles that dropped in the New York Times on November 15th that, that do not make him look good. And they have clearly been in reporting for quite a while. Uh, the big one that's going to be in the Times Magazine this weekend, uh, last weekend as you listen to this, uh, says that they interviewed over 100 current and former Warner Brothers Discovery employees. So the, these are not just uh, hot takes. These are deeply reported stories that make him look very silly in many, many instances. But before we even talked about that, the reason he's having such a, a bad week is because of the Wiley Coyote movie, which somehow has become an even bigger scandal than trying than canceling Batgirl, than shelving the Batgirl movie. He tries to shelve the Wiley Coyote movie, and now Joaquin Castro congressman from Texas is tweeting that we should investigate Warner Brothers Discovery for doing something that he compared to burning down the house for the insurance money. I mean, I think his point that this practice is anti-competitive is a compelling one. I do not think that we're going to see this regulated at, on a governmental level. I may be wrong. You know, I've predicted things wrong before, but uh at the, I, that seems like a, a more aggressive uh, government than the one that we have in terms of media regulation. But I'm, you know, like I said, I, I'll admit that I was wrong if I am, even though I think this should be regulated. Yeah, and the fact that it, it's hit that level of newsworthiness means that that people are noticing 
people are not just kind of complaining, but are moving on to what can we do about this? And so the story here is this uh, Coyote versus Acme movie that in kind of Roger Rabbit style is a hybrid live action animated film starring John Cena has been completely filmed, done with post-production. There is no work left except to market it and release it. But for a variety of reasons, Warner Brothers decided we would rather not do those final steps, which do cost money, to be fair. Marketing it and releasing it costs money. And if it's a flop, that costs more money because of reputation lost. But also, um, it is supposedly decent at the very least. People who've seen the test uh, viewings say it's not bad, which was not the story we got around Batgirl. At the very least, the you know the gossip around Batgirl was that it wasn't testing well. We are not hearing that story with the the Wiley Coyote movie. And on top of that, uh, John Cena is a major talent on the WBD roster. He is somebody they actually have planned for other projects that they are he is a major star for them that they are they are trying to retain and keep happy. And it is bonkers that they would burn him like this, let alone everyone else who worked on that project. Yeah, including James Gunn. I mean, uh yes, and also John Cena is a worldwide star. I mean, he's a like like one of the biggest celebrities in the world, not just as an actor, also because he's a wrestler. Like this seems very foolish. Even if they wanted to do straight to streaming instead of theatrical, um, why not just, you know, put it up for a month? Yeah, okay, if the problem is the cost of marketing it, don't market it. You're fine. If you think it's not that great, but it's good enough, do what the previous regime at Warner did and stick it on streaming. But that is not Zaz's playbook. It is so clearly not the way Zaz wants to run Warner. And so instead, they thought we can get a short-term win by getting a tax write-off for shelving it. And then we don't have to worry, what if it doesn't jive with the future we want to build for the Looney Tunes brand? Because some of the arguments I've heard is they're worried it will kind of tarnish or take the Looney Tunes brand in a direction they don't want to go. To which I say, the Looney Tunes brand? Are you so worried about the future of... Was there a Looney Tunes cinematic universe that we were all excited about that I missed the memo on? No, there was not. I I, un- I understand the DC side. Just to say, I understand the DC side a bit better. He is actively trying to do a hard reboot of the DC universe with James Gunn. That, I see the logic in some of the decisions. But Looney Tunes. Is he? I think what, what Zaslav is really looking at is something that the, the Times article, uh, the magazine article, does well to point out right away that he has $3 billion to cut in this budget. So you cut everywhere you can. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he really is that concerned about making good content. I think he is concerned about making money. Yes, but also I still am flummoxed by by some of this decision because I, I don't see how the short-term benefit was so great uh, that at least the blowback clearly outweighed it. Because what, what happened was some filmmakers who have 
projects planned at Warner started canceling their meetings because they don't want to work with a company that would completely finish a project and then shelve it, which is worse than what they did with Batgirl, just in terms of where it was in its production life. This movie was done. I completely agree. I really do not think that they expected it to have this much of a negative reaction and that it for it to get this much traction on social media, um, just because I think they underestimated maybe John Cena, even though he wasn't really the one posting about it a lot, but his name, you know, travels fast. And, um, you know, these filmmakers uh, had just overwhelming support. And I think that is part of the climate right now in Hollywood is that, you know, industry people are standing shoulder to shoulder. Creators are fed up. They're excited about the new Writers Guild deal, but that doesn't mean that they're going to bend over. Yeah, I think that's true. There's a bit of a solidarity and a bit of a backbone that the the overall community has, the directors and the writers, the writers and the actors, even though the directors did take the first deal they were offered. We forgive them because everyone feels like we are united in being the creative side and feeling like we are not being treated fairly by the business side, especially at these mega conglomerates like Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery. I do think in particular that Zaslav has become the face of this in a way that Bob Iger hasn't, and even Ted Sarandos hasn't, in a way that it might not be fair, um, but these two pieces really land that. Yeah, so the first one, the big one in the New York Times Magazine, has the headline, How David Zaslav Blew Up Hollywood, which on the surface might be read as a positive or a negative, but it does Mm. not take long in the piece to realize they don't mean it in a good way. They don't, no. A nice, juicy, long read here. Truly. Obviously, links in the show notes. That one is a 31-minute read, according to the Times. Uh, Some of the highlights that just really stuck out to me is a combination of personal anecdotes, a lot of quotes from the mogul Barry Diller, who is supposedly a close friend and, and confidant of Zaslav, but has no problem seemingly bad-mouthing him left and right to the Times, uh, that point out, in Diller's perspective, a, a lot, many times when people said, don't do that, David, David Zaslav, don't move to Hollywood Don't go take Jack Warner's old office on the Warner Brothers lot. None of the CEOs of Warner have done that for years, for years, even through the weird AT&T Warner days, even through the weird AOL Time Warner days. The CEO of Warner had to be the guy in charge of the business. That job is not the same job that Jack Warner had a million years ago when he founded Warner Brothers in the you know golden age of cinema that's not the way it is anymore and it hasn't been that way for a long time all of the current ceos of the modern era have been in the corporate office in new york doing corporate stuff running the business and when he got this job by merging discovery with warner brothers he brought in a ton of businessy problems notably an enormous amount of debt that they took as part of the deal with AT&T and he knew from day 1 he would have to cut billions of dollars in cost 
And many people, Barry Diller pointing out repeatedly, said, you're not going to make any friends by going out there. You're not going to improve anything about this position you're in by going out there. You should let the creatives handle the creatives, and you should handle the business. And it's so clear that at least the picture the Times is painting is, here's a man who really wanted to be the creative head honcho and and felt, I, I have earned it. I have bought my way into it. This is my kind of kingdom now, and I want to both have my cake and eat it too. I want to be the CEO and the creative guy. And and that is rarely something that exists. There are very few executives in any part of the Hollywood that have done both well simultaneously. Right. And the other question is, how did he think that was going to work when at the same time, He's just slashing budgets, and it looks like what he wants to do is break this up and sell it for parts. Yeah, that that re- remains the vibe in so many ways. They they make a good you know case for the logic in many of his decisions, at least at the beginning. Why would he want to absorb all of Warner at such a high price? All that debt is an enormous price to pay, and part of it was because he knew Discovery being a cable based. You know, uh, conglomerate Discovery's meat and potatoes is all of their cable networks that run tons of reality content. That wasn't going to grow in the era of streaming. He needed something like HBO and company to expand their streaming footprint and help drag House Hunters and HGTV into the streaming universe because it is a much harder sell to say, oh, do you want to pay $10 a month to watch House Hunter reruns that you could watch on cable anyway because you don't care which episode comes on? Versus, well, you want to subscribe to Max because you really care about the next episode of Succession. Also, it includes all of House Hunters. Now, did that work out for him the way he expected it to? Not really so far. No, I wouldn't say so. Uh... I think another aspect that they highlight that is part of the reason that he's become the face for so many of these complaints is that his own paycheck, while he is asking so many people to cut back and while he is doing things like shelving Batgirl, was astronomical even for a CEO. Yeah, there's a section in the article that feels just like a series of unforced errors being listed in a row that really start to unfold aggressively during the beginning of the writer's strike and then obviously the actor's strike. And some of them do just kind of make your jaw drop in hindsight. The, The pay is one because as they go into the strike, he has negotiated his contract so that instead of having his pay based on stock performance, they can have it based on cash flow because all of this cutting he was doing was not improving the stock price, but it was improving WBD's free cash flow. And so he said, what if instead of paying me based on the stock price, we adjusted it so it's based on basically how much I cut? (laughs) Which, sure, that makes sense to David Zaslav, but at that time, in that moment, where, where truly he is squeezing the Writers Guild, it feels extremely poor timing. Then he goes and gives that uh, infamous now uh, commencement speech at the beginning of the writer's strike where he gets heckled, even though people told him, cancel that speech, don't do it. He holds the 100th anniversary bash for Warner Brothers, not in Hollywood, but at the in France, 
as part of cans and has it thrown at this bizarrely kind of uh, branded, co-branded event with uh, Graydon Carter, who looks kind of like an ancient electrocuted version of David Zaslav. There are so many pictures in this article that seem chosen just to make David Zaslav look as silly and unrelatable as possible. One of them is him and Graydon Carter in identical, like, off-white beach leisure suits at this expensive, weird bash in France that was deeply unrelatable to everyone in Hollywood who he was currently in a labor dispute with celebrating David Zaslav, really. Then there's another one, just kind of inserted randomly, of David Zaslav at an event premiering a a nature show at Lincoln Center where there are just some penguins standing in front of David Zaslav that seems to say... You love those penguins. Here, he has some penguins, too. I know they're not his, but it was this vibe of, look at this weird man. Look at all the weird things he does. He's not really with it. And honestly, he makes a lot of decisions that make me wonder, are you really with it, David? And then, you know, it seems like some of these things, too, aren't even saving that much money. Like, obviously, the party was incredibly expensive, but like the TCM cuts. Yeah, another great example that they call out in this article. Didn't save a lot of money, made a ton of enemies amongst the group of people he was supposedly excited to work with and schmooze in Hollywood. The schmoozers. Oh, yeah. And then there's the fact that he calls himself and his gang of friends the schmoozers. This is an actual quote from one of the pieces. His largely male inner circle, they call themselves the schmoozers, would come to include the producer Brian Glazer, Activision Blizzard's chief executive Bobby Kotick, and other entertainment kingpins. I cannot think of a room of people I would flee faster Especially now that Jeffrey Epstein's no longer with us. I really think you are beginning to paint a picture of a room of white men that I would turn right around. Get out of that room. No, I I loved when um, one of the schmoozers, Ken Lear, compared this to um, the deep state. Yes. <laughs> the quote is, agents, writers, directors, producers, everybody hugs and kisses you and gets whatever they want. Then Lehrer told him, then the deep state takes over. It's like, no, uh, not taking any single moment after error after error to think, hmm, maybe I should change what I'm doing, but always deflecting and blaming others. Absolutely. Yeah, actually a really good way to put it. And that's just such a lack of leadership. Yeah, and they emphasize that even more in the second piece that is mostly about his time uh, running CNN and his, you know, uh, on-again, off-again bromance with former CNN chief Chris Licht, uh, which was predated by his on-again, off-again bromance with former CNN head Jeff Zucker. They really begin to paint a picture of a pattern here that means if, if David Zaslav says that he is your best friend, you better watch your back. With Chris Licht, we've talked a lot about Chris Licht and the bad press that he got and how that led to his downfall at CNN. Uh, Some juicy tidbits in the article about Zaslav letting him go. But, uh, you know, do you think that this could be a death knell for Zaz? You know, I wondered the same question as I thought about these articles. And I I don't think 
think he's that touchable yet. I don't think his board, the board of Warner Brothers Discovery, is that worried about him yet. But you can see the the winds kind of shifting direction here, where if this story, with all of these quotes from so many people, come, comes out, people who are on the record willing to badmouth him, and many people off the record willing to badmouth him on background. But what really struck me were the quotes from people like Barry Diller, who are influential in the I am on the board of directors of, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery class of people, making him just look like he doesn't Ooh. listen. Mm-hmm. And, and the board would want someone who at least listens to solid advice. You would think so. Uh, I, I'm inclined to agree with you that I don't think that he is going to lose his position anytime soon. But at the same time, I think that if there is a misstep, if the money starts, uh, you know, drying up for Warner Brothers Discovery in a significant way, uh, I think they can use this as context. Yeah. The vote yeah. no confidence. Listen. You know, the knives came out for Bob Chapek faster than I ever would have imagined. So there is a world where if there is someone lying in wait, that is something for him to worry about. I think the difference between the Bobs at Disney and Zaz is there isn't someone obvious who would take it back from him. Whereas Bob Chapek's ultimate downfall was that Bob Iger was waiting in the wings. At the same time, too, I do think he's become the face of this cost-cutting which is what these boards want. Yeah. And while uh, there has been a lot of bad press throughout the strikes, the strikes also allowed Warner Brothers Discovery to get rid of some uh, expensive contracts, some big deals that um, may save them some money in the long term, even though I don't care to admit that. Yeah. Yeah, no. And we we will have to wait and see uh, what happens next at WBD, especially as things begin to ramp back up and they actually have to start spending money producing content again. God forbid. The human interest aspect of these stories, really, just uh, do yourself a favor and sit down this weekend. Mm -hmm. Delicious. Uh, Two nuggets on the Chris Licht uh, stories that one of these nuggets was in each of the articles that came out that I just, again, even though I think Chris Licht was a terrible chief of CNN, I had to feel for him in these moments. One of them, Chris Licht flies to Abu Dhabi on a pre-existing work trip that required him to go to Abu Dhabi. And David Zaslav simultaneously has a meeting in the U.S. and is furious that Licht isn't there and screams at him on the call, why aren't you here? Why are you in Abu Dhabi? And so then Licht turns around and flies back from Abu Dhabi, a trip he was always supposed to go on as part of his job running CNN. That's number one. Number two is when uh, Zaslav actually fired Licht, he took him for a walk in Central Park early in the morning Already, okay, fine, yeah, okay, that's one way to, to you know, uh, do a business chat, uh, very Upper West Side of him. However, the day he did it was the day that the sky turned orange in New York due to dangerously unhealthy air quality from the Canada wildfires. Just the image of saying, hey, Chris, I know it's toxic outside, but let's go for a walk. That morning, for folks who don't live in New York, the vibe was so apocalyptic. 
It, the sky was literally orange. It was Martian outside. And to be like, hey, let's have a chat. Let's just go into the park, breathe the fresh air. It'll be great. Oh, it's like the Pine Barrens. What a man. What a man. What a career. But sadly, that's all the time we have for our good friend, David Zaslav. And trust us, that explanation of those articles took about half as much time as it will take you to read them, but they are worth your time and they are in the show notes. But without further ado, we have to move on to our main topic uh, this week, a movie on Netflix. Perhaps you're looking for a movie to watch over the Thanksgiving holiday. Perhaps you're wondering, uh, is this a movie I could watch with my friends and family or one I should watch alone in the dark cabin of an airplane? Well, the movie is called The Killer, and we are here with the answers, Diane. Uh, I wouldn't watch it on an airplane. Oh, I wouldn't watch it with your family. I guess you shouldn't watch it then. (laughs) Well, that was it. That was our review of The Killer. I would watch it, though. I like it. I don't love it. It's it's sexy and sleek, and it's got some uh, fun little tidbits. It's got really entertaining voiceover. It, it's a voiceover by star Michael Fassbender. This is a thriller by David Fincher, excellent thriller director, uh, about an assassin, the titular killer, who begins the movie by botching an assassination. And I don't want to give too many spoilers because maybe you still want to watch it, but he botches an assassination, and then that means they're coming for him, and so he has to get revenge. And that's it. That's the story of the killer. Easy to understand, although not so easy to follow the whole time, but maybe that's because I was looking at my phone a lot. Oh, yeah, don't do that. See, that no, makes I, me wish... I, I think do do that. This fo- This movie was made to look at your phone during. It was not. It was made to watch in the cinema and... I would not pay money. I I wouldn't pay to go see this. It was perfectly fine to watch at home for two hours on a Tuesday night. I would not pay money to see this in theaters. I wanted to see it in theaters, and I think it's beautifully shot. Yeah. David Fincher is an excellent director, and visually it is crisp and gorgeous, and there's a bit of a travelogue element to it. Each chapter of the story takes place in a different city. It does have um, one action sequence uh, that I think is incredible and really fast-paced and uh, got my heart bumping. Unfortunately, it's around the midpoint. Yeah, in and Florida, then, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then the film kind of slows. Um, it has another great sequence and with a wonderful performance from Tilda Swinton that I don't want to go too much into because of avoiding spoilers, but it, I think is a... Some really juicy work from both actors, but then it kind of fizzled out at the end for me, which I was disappointed by. Yeah, one one of the notes I wrote to myself is "sweet gig for Tilda Swinton." She gets like ten minutes yeah. of really good screen time with Michael Fassbender, and then she's out. And th- that also describes a lot of the other characters in the movie. The, a lot of the movie is this person, you're going to meet him for 10 to 20 minutes, and then he's going to move on because he, he's on a mission going from place to place, figuring out who ordered this hit that went awry and then caused him to become a target uh, based on the fact that he did flub his job of being a killer. He did, uh, which is, you know, 
part of part of the risk of the job. And I, I liked that it was sort of a a more human John Wick story. You know, you have like this expert killer, but at the same po- point, um, he is fallible. You know, it's he's not uh, just a like cartoon character. He's he's really human and he's fighting that aspect, his own humanity all the time. I thought that tension was really interesting. These sort of uh, mostly silent, brooding killers um, have become kind of a genre unto themselves. You have like, you know, your um, American Psycho, um, I think did it particularly well. Uh, I think uh, Drive with uh, Ryan Gosling is a good example of this genre too. And then totally John Wick is like the, you know, the juicy action version. But this to me was like like this sort of like sleek neo-noir version and it worked, I think. It's fine. I, I would have described it as American Psycho by way of Jack Ryan. Sure. Or Jason Bourne. But, but you know, those characters, you know, putting American Psycho aside, your Jack Ryans, your Jason Bournes, your John Wicks, they all have something a little more uh, personal driving their mission. And the killer does have a personal connection to something that I I don't think we need to spoil, driving his mission of revenge. But it is not a super strong connection, and he is a very cool, calculated character. And it's not a critique on Fassbender. I think he nails the performance of this character. Oh, he's great. He is. He really is. And, And he is one of the best reasons to watch the movie in some ways. Uh, but he doesn't have a lot going on internally. There aren't a lot of motivations that I'm like hooked onto. So much as I'm just kind of on a roller coaster, you know, bar down, secure in my seat, kind of going for the ride. I agree with that. I think that some of that like internal emptiness was by design, but seeing someone who is empty inside a, a you know in-depth portrait of that, um, while it could be a fascinating critique of you know male chauvinism and of capitalism and of violence, is also gonna feel a little bit empty and hollow um, because that's what you're getting a very close look at. Yeah, and so I think that made the the work of the movie, of the writing and of the directing, harder because they have to make up for that in some ways. I don't want to say that that is necessarily a flaw in and of itself, but it does mean that you have to elevate or hook me in another way because the character isn't going to do it by design and that's okay but then there needs to be a killer climax or an amazing twist and I, I, I did not have either of those the movie ended very surprisingly for me in that suddenly it was over yeah I agree that that, that final sequence to me doesn't hit home and I was disappointed because I think the first hour of the movie I really loved and then there were other good points where there'd be like a sequence and I was back in it you know um but it felt yeah it's really anticlimactic which is too bad but I do think for a streaming movie which it did have a very brief theatrical release I think in New York you can still see it at the Paris uh but um 
you know, because Netflix owns the Paris. But uh, other than that, um, you know, it's mostly a streaming movie. The quality of this for a Netflix movie is very, very good. Yeah. Yes, I could agree with that. It felt like a very Netflix movie to me in that I wouldn't want to see it in theaters and I didn't hate it at the same time. Like uh, last week, we talked about Ant-Man and Quantumania. I can safely mm-hmm. say this was a better use of two hours than Ant-Man and Quantumania, because at least I walked oh away with some interesting thoughts about the you know, structure of the movie and what I watched. And it wasn't just regurgitating some tropes in front of CGI. It was at least trying to do a thing. And I don't know if it nailed that thing it was trying to do. I would say it didn't. I would say it it really did not stick the landing. But I appreciate the effort, and I did not feel like my time was wasted. Uh, I agree with those things. I don't think that it stuck the landing either. And I think that part of the issue is that, like, you really need a good first 10 minutes and last 10 minutes of a movie. And I think those were probably the weakest ends on either side which yes. is a bummer yeah the big be- the beginning not my favorite either which is how i wound up looking at my phone a lot the beginning is heavy in the narration from fassbender which is not bad narration but at the beginning there's not a lot there is eventually some action when he you know tries mm-hmm. to kill his target and fails but that doesn't happen soon enough in the beginning and i was pretty bored by the time that that happened and then they hooked me back in and then the momentum started to pick up but i agree both the beginning and end did not hook me in the way that they needed to to sell me on this story about an empty person you know someone who i'm not hooked by the character i need to be hooked by the events I just love the way this movie looks, I think. And that, to me, might might just be part of me being a Fincher fan and also just loving noir, like, loving this style of movie. Like, every outfit he wears is so cool. I don't know the last time I saw someone look this cool in a movie, as Michael Fassbender does. And Tilda Swinton looks really cool, too, in a very different way. But, yeah, I, I just, like... He's rocking this bucket hat and listening to the Smiths. And I was like, oh, I wish I were that cool. Yeah. And in addition to the Smiths, there's a soundtrack that Trent Reznor uh, contributed to. It does hit many of Fincher's high points in terms of craft. It is Fincher executing at a very high Fincher level. I just think the underlying story, the underlying thing that I was there to watch did not hook me very well, but the the direction made up for a lot of it. Fastbender made up for a lot of it, and the end result is a solid B minus. Yeah, I agree. Not bad. I I no. would I watch this with my family? Maybe they like Jack Ryan. They like the Bourne movies, but I do think they would struggle in the first ten minutes, and then at the end they'd be like, "Huh, that's how it ended, huh?" Yeah, which I was kind of like, oh. Yeah. Oh, I I guess it all comes down to story. Uh, there are certain parts of it that I think feel like it was created for social media. Again, kind of going back to my Daily Show issue where like sequences of it would look really great on a TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. There's an easily thrilling sizzle reel to be made out of this movie. And maybe if this movie was 90 minutes instead of two hours, it would be a lot better. At the end, there is maybe too much uh, dead time, dead air, 
kind of not filler, but but parts where the momentum isn't there. And unfortunately, the ending is one of those parts, and I do think the ending would need to be tweaked or fixed. I don't just think shortening the runtime would solve my feelings about the ending being very flat. But I do think overall, if you trimmed about 20 to 30 minutes out of this, it would be a lot more propulsive than it was. I agree. I also think that the reason I said I wouldn't want to watch it on a plane, number one, is because I think the best part of it is the visuals and that on on a plane screen, no thank you. But um, uh, unless maybe you have some sort of nice laptop that you're <laughs> downloading into I, I don't know uh depend what what netflix service are you paying for these days but for me i i at least wanted to put it like on the on the big screen at home if since i couldn't make it to see it in the cinema um, yeah yeah and i would say it benefited from the size of my tv i just don't think that it would have benefited that much more from the size of a movie theater screen I think that seems fair. I am relieved to hear you say that about the ending because I was kind of like, did I miss something? Was uh, there, yeah. am I not contemplating some thematic elements? Uh, so I, I I am relieved to hear you say that. Same, same, because I was looking at my phone during the first half of the movie until it got a lot more action-y. And then I was paying closer attention in the back half as the action began to ebb. And I wondered, did I miss something that made this all more tense? The tension just deflates. It's not about there needing to be constant violence or chases or pure, brutal action. It's that the tension really suddenly deflates at the end in a way that made me also go, did I miss something that would make this seem hugely significant? And the answer is no. I don't think so. Yeah. Unless I, who watched it without paying attention to my phone too much, uh, also missed it. I don't know. Yeah, and I would say, if you are going to watch this, you can stare at your phone during the first 15 minutes when it's just him narrating in Paris and talking about McDonald's and uh, Airbnb. That part, I literally felt like I'm watching a podcast and I could close my eyes and would be having an extremely similar experience, except minus David Fincher's very nice visuals. And then the visuals began to be more compelling from a story perspective. But there was an element at the beginning where I I've, I really felt, wow, this is a pure Netflix movie in that they don't even think I'm looking at the screen. And thankfully, they did overcome that. But it does speak to, I think, your very smart point that the beginning and the end are the weakest parts, which is rough. It is, yeah. What a shame. I think it could have been good. That is something I've said about so many Netflix movies, which is why we only dip into them every now and then. Though I, I will remind listeners, last year it was Glass Onion, which I enjoyed a lot more. Oh, I think this is objectively a better movie than Glass Onion. This is why we do this, Diane. I could <laughs> not disagree more. Uh, Glass Onion is like overstuffed and corny. This is like, you know, at least trying to do something. Yeah, Glass Onion had a lot of stuff happening. It was trying to be interesting. This movie, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I hear ya. I mean, I, I guess I just don't totally buy into the Ryan Johnson thing. But, you know, we each get our own auteur. Don't we? And listener, 
who is your auteur? What movie should we be watching on streaming that we are currently neglecting? You should tell us by emailing podcast at streamageddon.com. But until then, it's Thanksgiving. It's time to go um, be miserable on a plane. You could download and watch The Killer on that flight, but um, I agree with Diane. You might enjoy it more on your TV. But also, if you're stuck on a plane, it might be way more entertaining than I'm saying it was for me. Uh, binge some TV while you binge on some food. Oh, beautifully said. And we will be binging some TV as well and back to talk to you about it. In the meantime, as always, you should do one thing and one thing only. Keep Keep streaming. We're getting better at that. Yeah, I think so. I know so, because I have to edit it when we get it wrong. <laughs> you know what? Uh, now I wish I would have just told them to what, what other David Fincher movies to stream. What are they? Instead. Um, oh, what's the one with um, with the Hulk? With Ed Norton? No. With Mark Ruffalo? With Mark Ruffalo. Which Hulk? It's... Tatiana Mazzani? <laughs> no, yes. <laughs>